everyone, and welcome to another Scots Way podcast. And tonight I'm joined by writer Graham Armstrong. Hello, Graham. How are you doing? Thanks for having me. No bother at all. Um, we're going to talk about your uh, novel, The Young Team. But before we get on to specifically The Young Team, I want to know a little bit about why and how you became a writer. Um, it's, a, it's a long one, actually. You know, I um, it's the old story. I started... Um, talking about doing an English degree when I was about 16 and I had um, the girl sitting next to me in my class had said why don't you do train spotting for your personal study and I said I, just, I thought that was a film is that, is that a book <laughs> and she went I, I think it's a book aye and she says I'm going to do it you should do it what a transformative moment for me you know um, once I read that completely succinct you know my experiences at a Lanarkshire Ned involved in young team culture to reading about heroin addicts you know in the 80s but I was nose to nose with some of the same stuff, you know, and um, obviously it's a different dialect that I possessed from east to west. But um, that was the start for me, you know, and I started telling teachers, I'm going to study English, you know, and, and they laughed, a lot of them. They, they laughed, mate, you know, they, um, they didn't see a, a university candidate. I'd been expelled from my first high school. Um, that was my second chance and last chance school. You get two goals at mainstream and then after that you're into the bad boy school. Um, you know, so, and I remember one, I said, um, I'm, he said, what are you going to do when you leave school? And I said, I'm going to go and study English. And he said, aye, right. And he did an impression. He said, I'm Graham Armstrong. I'm a great, you want me? You know, and I was laughing and I went, watch this, I'm going to do it. I'm going to go to uni. Um, and very, very luckily, you know, I had some good people help me and I did a scraped in. I got an A, a B in two C's and that was me. So I went to Stirling Uni. Um, and then I'd love to tell you that was a fairy tale ending, you know, that I was a great student, a very, very studious academic. Uh, but I wasn't, you know, I was a drug addict. I was still involved in gang stuff, you know, the legacy of that, running around Lanarkshire. Um, went to University of Stirling, but I came back every night practically to go and ah, live my right. life, you know, and then drove back. Albeit I lived in halls and then and got flats up there. But, um, you know, at the end of that, I had um, 2012 Christmas Eve, I'd stopped taking drugs. It was a transformative moment, found faith, you know, had a, an epiphany, Christmas epiphany, as it were. And um, in the weeks after that, to keep myself back for the, for the young team and all the trips and drugs, I started writing. And, and then eight years later, here we are, the young team. So you, when you started to study English, it wasn't to do a creative writing course, it was... No, no, it was, it was, um, it was critical, yeah, so English, just English lit. And so did you ever think at that time, um, I can do this, especially having, you know, fallen in love with train spotting so early on? Um, I put pen to paper on a kind of crime fiction. I used to read a lot of Ian Rankin and all that when I was young, Michael Conley, just your, your, your normal yeah, crime yeah. stuff, you know, and um, I wrote a kind of average crime novel as it were, you know, it was, it was a kind of first attempt, you know, at writing, and it, it wasn't very good, it was a bit cliche, you know, and um, I thought, you know what, that's, that's not what I'm going to do, and right. I, I wasn't serious, you know, I think, but when I came to sit down to write The Young Team, I was like, one day this is going to be read, so it needs to be on its toes, you know, and, and then that was it, you know, I showed the uni, um, I showed Kathleen Jamie, who was my tutor, All right. I said yeah. I was going to do a poetry dissertation about the city, um, I've never actually said it, but I, I forgot, you know, I, I was going to do this poetry dissertation. It was going to be about the city. I was going to read pre Preludes, TSL and all that. It's quite interesting in the city. Um, and then my friend said, why don't you show them this book you've been doing, this, this young team? Oh, no, they won't want to see that. Um, and I went to Kathleen Jamie's office. I'd already had a meeting, by the way. This was two out of five. 
and I said, I want to change topic. Now, that's not always, they don't like that, you know? No. <laughs> um, and I, she said, what is it you want to do? And I said, I want to do creative fiction. And she was, you know, that, that moment, they go, here we go. Um, and I, I pulled out my manuscript. It was, it was the first, the young team was writing his free succinct books in the age period. So I filled out the first manuscript. It was about 200 sheets of paper. And I, I slid it across the desk and she flicked through it and she was laughing. And um, after a minute, and she, and she slid it back and she went, just choose three, actually, you're done. <laughs> she said, just 5,000 words of commentary um, to go with us uh, to justify your, you know, your choices and, and you're done young man it's, it's publishable so I was like wow that was a moment you know that was a huge moment that's incredible it was a beautiful moment you know and then she uh-huh. um, I, I got a first for, for that particular um, my dissertation that pulled me up to a 2-1 so I got a 2-1 you know who would have, who would have thought it and then uh, it was at that point Kathleen Jamie had said to me, we're, going, we're doing the Creative Writing Masters now, why don't you come back, continue to develop this? And that's where I met Janice Galloway. Um, and then, you know, that really taught me, creative writing doesn't teach you how to write. It no. teaches you how to think critically about stuff that you've written, or how, yeah. you know. So it was, uh, for me, it took, it took me from enthusiastic amateur to young you know, semi-professional who was then submitting to agents who had a, a you know, a clue, just a wee bit, you know, so, aye. Because I think some people think, oh, creative writing courses, I'll teach everyone to write the same way, or, you know, they're kind of formulated, but what I've found is there's the opportunity, if you're lucky, to be mentored by some really good people, and it's that mentoring, that yeah. kind of passing on of knowledge and advice that's the real benefit. 100%. You know, and I think as, a, as an industry, it can be quite cynical, you know, and it's like we're going to teach everybody to write best-selling books. It's not. They're going to teach you how to develop your own ideas, you know, and hone them. And once you've got something, that, that raw, unpolished stone, they're going to teach you how to approach agents, you know, how to take that step into the business. Because, you know, there are, people always ask writing questions. The writing's easy, but, you know, the writing took me, I was 21 to 23 writing the bulk of the young team. It took me from age 23 to 28. The next five years, just constant rejections and going through that cycle. 300, you know, really? knows. That's, close that's a few people. Yeah. The, um, you know, saying, saying they see exploitive in the first page and written in dialect and, you know, train spotting wannabe, all of these things, you know, that you could accuse, excuse me, the young team of, you know, it's, um, it was a tough one, you know. It's really interesting going from uh, Kathleen Jamie, obviously seeing the potential in the book and yourself as a writer, to then having all these knockbacks from uh, agents and from publishers and things. I, I mean, that's a real kind of high to low right there. And I suppose that's the life of a writer. It was tough, you know, and um, I, I always laugh because one of the, they, they, they say, and it's good advice, by the way, send it to one, wait for your rejection, send it to the next, right? I started doing that. See, after two or three years, I just started carpet bombing. You know, it was, I was like Lancaster, you know, boom, boom, boom. And that's, I was just sending them everywhere, everywhere. Um, you know, and, and one woman replied, and they, they always have a submissions thing, but I used to send it to the individual agents as well, just in case, you know. Um, and one woman, <laughs> I won't name her, I can't even remember her name, but she messaged me back to say, Graham, it's still I know this year. And I went, I'll see you next year. <laughs> Because I, tw- I did two rounds a year, you know, I did 50 to 70 twice a year, and then I would go back and I would refine and I would take on, because some people, they were dead kind, you know, and they said, Graham, this is really good stuff, you know, and this is what we recommend you to do or look at or change, you know, it's not for us. Um, 
But, but I, it's, it's a war of attrition, you know, uh, you know, and you just need to keep going. There wasn't a plan B, you know. <laughs> My family, after about four or five years, you know, they were starting, albeit they were very hopeful and they believed in me, they were starting to say, you know, maybe you should start thinking about a plan B. I said, rubbish, there's no plan B for me. It's this a bust, you know. So you must have had great faith in this book. Was it finished in all that time? You weren't tinkering with it or anything? It was just like, this is my mind. No, 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 it was constant refinement, honestly. Yeah. Um, right the way through it, absolutely. Um, like I wrote the, um, the three books combined, right? Because I was, I was basically pitching them as three succinct novels. It was a trilogy, right, okay. you know? Um, and that was going down like a lead body balloon, <laughs> do you know that? Because they just thought, this is commercial rubbish, you know, take it away, you know, this is not literary. And I was saying, no, it's, it's the style, it's literary, you know? And they're like, no, no, it's, it's no good. And it was my aunt actually had said to me, see if you ever like this book to see the light of day, you better put it as one book and listen to what they've told you. And I said, aye, all right, then. You know, so I did, I merged it. But it was a 235,000 word monster. You know, it was huge. Yeah, yeah. Maybe even longer than that. It was a quarter of a million. It was like Lord of the Rings, the Urgent Eds. You know, I've said that before. And it was that long, you know? Um... And I realise that's too long, right? The kind of unspoken rule. They say one, two, five for, for newbies, you know, unless it's bloody Will Fall or something really yeah. good. Um, so I said, all right. And I cut 50,000 words. I killed my darlings, as they say, you know. Um, and then that's so obviously sitting at about 195 and I was sending it out. And then Jonathan Rippin, my first agent, he got in touch and he said, I'm interested, but I need the immediate commitment of cutting 50,000 words before we can even talk. And I took four days off work. I phoned in sick every day and I said, I can't come in. And I worked night and day. I worked 17 hours a day. Cut, 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 cut. It was major surgery. And this was the operating table, you know what I mean? We were losing it. And then that was it. He said, that's it. That was amazing. What an incredible work rate. So he just took me on. That was it. So um, it's almost, it sounds almost like this was a test. If this guy does what I've asked him to do, then I've got something to work with here. I think absolutely, you know, and I think actually we were too hasty doing some of that, by the way, because I've been, recently I've been going back through the old stuff. Um, I've been asked to do that, you know, and, and look at the old stuff and there's some good stuff in it, you know, it just needed a bit of refinement, a bit of work, but I'm, I'm a lot older now, I'm 30 now, you know, I wrote some, or 30 next year coming and I wrote some of this when I was 21, you know, but it's nice to go back, I thought, you know, that was raw talent, but it was unrefined, you know. I think there's a director's cut there then? I kind of well, <laughs> maybe it might it might be our friends in the old uh, adaptation quarter that are talking about that. So I can say no more. Okay, okay, fair enough. <laughs> <laughs> so um, a lot of people I've said I've read this in one review at least that say the people that will read the young team aren't the people that are in young team, and I don't think that's right. I think at one point you could possibly argue that those are the cases, but how how have you found it's been received and who's been reading it? That just just on your first point there, it, that it's literary classism. That's yeah. what that is. It's saying that you know the the people that populate this work, the urchins of of North Lanarkshire and so on, don't read literary fiction. But you must have heard that loads, loads by the way, and it's it's draconian. You know, it's old fashioned. It's philistine stuff. Lots of people read books now. Yeah. You know, and just because. They don't walk around with hardbacks, you know, and Costa Coffee and all the rest of it. They listen to audiobooks, you know. There's, there's new ways to consume the material. Um, and lots of young men, surprisingly young men from Airdrie, they've heard about it. You know, they've heard there's a young team book, there's a book about young teams. So they go and buy it, right? They're not your traditional consumers of literary fiction by any means. But they read it 
and they recognize the voice, which is why voice and dialect is so important because it's the way they speak and they recognize the humor, they recognize the fashion, all the cultural emblems. And then before they know it, they're halfway through a work of literary fiction and then they finish it, you know, and then they're talking about what they're going to read next. And by the way, that, I see myself in them. But that is a beautiful thing, you know, it feels full circle, because I was that kid. Well, I was going to say, I, I can remember when that was the effect that Trainspotting had, it was almost became a cliche that this was a book that reached people, you know, it was sold in record shops, it wasn't necessarily sold in bookshops, it was passed from people to people, it was a huge um, hit that way, so as you say, kind of full circle there. Absolutely, and like, um, there's been some really, really tough interactions, you know, and, and beautiful ones, but tough as well, you know, and people especially around mental health, you know, guys messaging to say, I've experienced that for years, I've not been able to communicate it, you know, I could never find a language to, to communicate that to a partner, um, you know, and, and we know that this is the link between male suicide, you know, guys just, it's a macho thing, it's tough to be able to tell people how you're feeling, you know, people look at me, right, they looked at me then, I was a tough guy. I looked like a tough guy. I wore Bergos jackets. You know, I ran about with the pack. I was, you know, in police cars, everything, you name it. You know, and there I was, struggling with mental health behind the scenes. You know, and did I tell anybody? No, I didn't. Because I just couldn't find the words. I was, it was that machoism. You know, and the young team's very, very honest in that way. I was like, you need to put us down in a way that other guys that are going through this shit will see it and think, do you know what? I'm not alone for a start. And it's all right to tell, you know. It was very uh, honest that way. It was tough. Uh, well, how tough was it to write that stuff? How difficult was it to kind of, did you really have to get into your own experience? I'd just be honest. It was tough. It was tough. You know, I, I wrote all that stuff right. And then um, later on, I was in uni and I read it to the master's class and they were like, fucking hell. Like, they'd never heard anything like that, you know. And there was like, you could hear a pin drop. And it was their response that made me kind of like, oof. It was heavy, I felt, you know, you feel like naked, you know? Yeah, yeah. You felt naked, right? And I was like, wow, man, that was heavy. And, you know, Kathleen Jamie said to me after, that was super brave doing that, by the way. Like, loads of guys will feel that. And, you know, it was, it was tough. But see, when I was constantly editing it, see, when I got to that middle bit after Fantasylands, I went, oh, here we go again. I need to go in again, man. I need to go in. You know, but then you stop seeing the trauma. You know, it was like a marathon on trauma for a long time. And I'm like, yeah. oh, fuck, here we go again. Does it, it looking became, back on it now, does it feel that it, this was what happened to you or do you think, oh, that was a different bit? Because sometimes when you're not in mm, issues with mental health, you can kind of feel... You know, it depersonalises it a bit, the art of the craft, because you're looking at it as an art, you know, in an artistic way. Yeah. I, I look at it and I'm looking and I'm thinking, did I get that right? Did I get the words right there? Did I say what I was trying to say? You know, did I get it across? And that, it's like a shield almost for how you were truly feeling. You know, and when I talk about it, like I've read those bits at, at my launch, you know, I read about mental health in front of all my friends, all my family, you know, girls, everybody. Um, and that was tough, you know. That was because I'm somebody that still suffers with anxiety, do you know what I mean? It doesn't just go away, that's one of the things. You don't just get better for us, you know. It's the way you're wired. You feel stressed, you feel anxious, you know. But um, it's important, you know, all that feedback for those people that we're talking about, that's when it reminds me that what you've done is valuable, you know. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, a lot of people then will read Young Team and say this is direct experience. So can you give us an idea of just how direct it is? Or, you know, it's, I mean, it's a piece of fiction at the end of the day. What I would say, right, is that everything in the Young Team is inspired one way or another, right? In real life, you know, I was in gangs. I was a drug addict. The mental health stuff, the drug stuff, everything's first hand. It wasn't always 
the pitched battles that you see, it didn't always work that way, you know. Oh. And then you were walking up the road yourself one night, and then the fight would come, you know. Fixing always is convenient, you know. The toy ones are always just happen to be there when the young team walk around. And that's the difference between fiction. It has to be convenient. It's a story, you know. It has to be peaks and troughs. Real life, it was like loads of nothing. The boredom, the ennui. I, I don't think I captured that. In the young, that's one of the feelings. They're doing nothing, but it's hard to write nothing. It you is, know? yeah. Absolutely. Um, and keep it as pacey, because the short chapters and the pace are what keeps these young guys reading the book. You know, it's exciting. And it's over, as you say, it was originally three books. It's over a long period of time as well, so you really have to get it. But yeah, the violence, the exposure to violence, you know. Did one of my friends get murdered? No, they didn't. It was one of my friends that killed somebody. So that the truths are sometimes changed round, you yeah. know. Um, and that's to protect yourself as well, you know, yeah. emotionally as well as, you know, politically. Um but yeah, but I've written the memoir. I have written the true, the true story of it all, you know, and it's um, that, that's to follow. I'm still working on that one. It's a very different enterprise, that is. Um, Fascinating. Family are a bit worried about that. Yeah. I can I, you know, they don't, they've got an idea. You know, they've got a good idea because obviously I was in massive trouble with the cops and all that. Um, expelled for high school, was a drug addict. You know, your family are not immune to that. Yeah. Um, they suffer along with you for many, many years. But they they don't know the full extent of everything, you know, and um, some of the stuff's pretty scary, you know, like really scary. And the the memoir focuses on a series of moments, you know, and um, there's one, it's called Every Single One a Murder Weapon, right? And I talk about all the knives I've seen, you know, um, and like that, you feel like you're almost watching a documentary, you know, and it's like these reconstructions of how murders happen, you know, and you're only it's your own life. You know, it's it's pretty scary. So different, different enterprise. So why did you want to write this, as well as that you've got this book of fiction, which is you know as well yeah. received? Why did you want to do, do the real life stuff? Because I think it focuses more on the moments than the movement. You know, the, the narrative arc isn't it's similar. You know, young boy gets involved with gangs, a descent, a rise out of gangs. It's the same movement. All these stories are similar. Yeah, but it's the actual. Before and after, and I like the way that I sometimes hone in on the young team. Like, so the uh, the rave one, yeah. raving in the bedroom, they weren't keen on that because uh, they don't spend any time in the rave. And I went, that wasn't the point, it was the before, it's the build up to the rave. That was the crazy bit seeing the rave. I was taking about 10 eckies, I didn't even know what I was doing, I was just bouncing around, you know. But it was the befores and the afters, and it's through these wee collections of moments in the memories, you know, and they're not as dramatic, they wouldn't be in fiction. Yeah. See, actually, when you're thinking this person actually experienced these, there's, there's loads. There's just a collection of all these wee sequence of moments. And it's a bit, a bit Ulysses style, by the way. It's written as stream of consciousness and one memory will take me into another memory. It's, so I want, to, I want to craft it, you know, and play with language. And so it's, I've, got a, I've got a working title. Um, Tupac's song was To Live and Die in L.A. Yeah, yeah. Means is To Live and Die in L.A. But Lanarkshire at the end. So To Live and Die in Lanarkshire. Because in the novel, there's some of them, are, those are my favourite bits, where it's Abby on his own, and uh, if you say that bit where he's getting ready to go, it's the anticipation. It's the idea that, you know, there's a there's often bits in the book where it's the possibility of something changes or something new, whereas the excitement is. And often that yeah. possibility implodes, but there is that still that hope. 
the bit, do you know what really was a focal point for me? It's the afters, right? Because you always see in films, right? Oh, the big fight, they build up to the fight. Everybody can imagine that. What happens three hours after the fight, you know, when you're sitting with broken teeth and you're covered in eggs and lumps and bumps? What happens then, you know? It's that, because you don't just go home, you know? I used to be sitting cans of beer, cold cans of beer on my face like that, you know, to take the sting out of your, your face being hurting like that. That's realism. That's what realism is, because... And that's what lived experience affords you, you know? So it's those moments, the befores and the afters, you know? Everybody can imagine the action. Everybody can imagine a fight. But, um, but doing it in a way that wasn't like... One journalist described it as a Western. I don't think it is a Western. Aye. You know, there's consequences. It's not like gung-ho. I don't think the young team's gung-ho at all. No. Um, and it, it wasn't meant to be, you know? No, absolutely. I would, that's something I would never uh, say it was. Um, yeah. You spoke there about the language, and it's written in uh, your own dialect, North Lanarkshire dialect. How important was that to, to do? I mean, it's something I think that you were determined that this was going to be the way it was written. Yes, I think it was just absolutely fundamental, honestly. Um, and it's funny because my first book was Standard English, you know, and, and then see when I came to write The Young Team, it was a no-brainer because, see, it's this whole political thing, and we talked about James Kelman, you know, and I remember writing that. You know, my language and my culture has the right to exist and no one has the authority to dismiss it. Absolutely. You know, and I thought, wow, what a powerful sentiment, you know, for yeah. a young working class author. You know, and for him to have to say that on the podium after a booker judge has stood up, declared his work, frankly, it's crap and marched out, it's a disgrace. Mm-hmm. You know, Tom Leonard, you know, the six o'clock news, as you say, it's, you know, these were working-class Glasgow men who were writing in their own dialects, you know, representing truth in their way and in their language and in a language of their community. Very yeah. important. And you artistically, know. literally, you know, I mean... Absolutely. It's a, it's a thing of beauty. It becomes the craft, you know. Um, so it was, it was super important. For people who don't know, when, when Jim Kelman, Jim Kelman won the Booker Prize for how late it was, how late, you know, I mean, to say it was divisive is an understatement, you know, that he was called a savage illiterate, and uh, um, I think it was Simon Jenkins from the Times said it was like being accosted by a drunk on a train, a Glasgow drunk specifically on a train. I mean, outrageous things to say, really. Outrageous. Um, and again, <clears throat> a writer that I think some people think, oh, uh, he's not that well read, but he's absolute hero to nearly every Scottish writer I know. You know, see these guys, they were carving, we're the the children of their literary rebellion, you know, we are, we wouldn't exist if it wasn't for them, so you need to know your roots, you know, Um, and they're ours, and I remember when Janice Galloway read my work, she laughed, and she went, this is going to be tough, you know, to publish because of the the dialect, and she said, I'm going to tell you what I told Irvin Welsh, you must cut back, she's like, because it was literally, it was like we were talking to each other in an MSN chat room, you know, it was that hard, you know, I don't think I compromised, to be honest, only in terms of legibility, so that people could understand, you know, there were certain words, we used to say lit for like, oh, it was like, and all that, right, but it just confuses the actual um, syntax, you know, so it was better just to have like, so some are tiny wee bit, not sanitised, no. you know. No, no, not sanitised, but it's interesting, I mean, is that, so when you're reading it back, are you saying, oh yeah, that needs to be a bit more clear or that needs to... Is that the way that you judge it? Do you know what? I had to go through it about 500,000 times. Do you know that? And that's probably conservative because 
the the actual punctuation, right? Like, see, as he uses A for the personal pronoun, I, you know, and I, I didn't capitalise them. <laughs> and I thought, do you know what? That's a bit confusing because we're going to use traditional punctuation, right? So capitalised, you know, in apostrophes for I am, I am. So I had to go back through every single A in the book and change them. And 200,000 worth of A's, is, is a, that was a long day. I'm going to say that I think that was a long day well spent because that know. little thing absolutely worked. It works going back to the way that Tom Leonard wrote his poetry, the phonetic way, you know, you read it as you see it and you hear it and then it makes sense. And absolutely. Yes, you know, and like, people think that's weird. Like, you know, just like learning Italian. You know, I've got Italian family. I don't speak Italian. I've tried to read it. You know, my, my sister's fluent. Um, and you just say it the way you see it. You know, it's like reading a menu. This is reading our menu. <laughs> You know, I went to a group of American uh, students who were over at Glasgow Uni, and um, we gave them Tom Leonard's poetry to do because if you <laughs> just read it on page, suddenly they were hearing the sounds that they were, you know, understood. <laughs> and there was a girl who um, was from Brooklyn, and she had been given a scholarship to go to uh, this kind of really good university. And she was almost in tears because she got it. She understood. She says, yeah, I am looked down upon for the way I speak in my university. It's not the way that yeah. my parents speak. It's not the way that my friends on the street speak. And therefore, I have to change this. And it's universal, unfortunately. I know. There's a, especially Scots, there's a social conformity, you know. And as he talks about that, and I borrowed that phrase from Tom Leonard, by the way, and it's from him and Monica. And he detects Monica's... Uh, voice changing a wee bit because she's now in an environment of middle class going to university you know and, and as he notes it he calls it low status lingo well, low status language is something I borrowed from Tom Leonard in an interview and I thought that is exactly what it is you know it's actually a true representation of the way people speak but it's looked down upon because the vantage points are looking always above looking down and we are down looking up yep absolutely and it was something which was uh drilled into generations of, of, of Scots, including my own parents, you know, that uh, there's a right way, like James Kelvin says in Kieran uh, Smith Boy, there's a right way to speak and, uh, and it's the Queen's English and all of that stuff. And it's, and, and that, I mean, you, you, you have seen it, I'm sure, in some of the reaction, not only to when you were trying to get it published, but in some of the uh, reviews as well. So it's been out for a while now. How do you feel that, it, you know, now that it's been out in the world, and you're looking back on it, and you lived with it for so long. How do you view the young team? Um, I'm I'm very happy. I'm happy with the reception in the community. I'm happy with the literary reception. There's been no negativity around this book at all. Yeah. You know, the Times and the Scotsman, they say what they think. You know, that's fine. They they write for their readership. You know, and and in the way their reviews were was for their readership. You know, they weren't bad reviews. No. This hasn't had a bad no. review. No. You know, it's just from a different vantage point. You know, the Guardian, to call it dazzling poetry, for a guy that was expelled for school and laughed at when he was told he was going to go to university, that's pretty good. I take that, yeah. you know, and I'm very pleased at that, you know. And, and even more importantly, by the way, is that these young guys are now feeding back to me, you know, I'm thinking I, I'm stopping taking drugs because I read your book. I'm thinking about going to university. I'm reading now, you know. That's the true prize. That's it, operating at its highest potential. So are you you're getting this kind of feedback and is it coming through everywhere I take it social media and because this is a new 
way of people feeding back is an immediate feedback. I've just finished this book and then I can tell you exactly how I feel about it and what it's meant to me. It is, you know, um, I, DMs, DMs, they go night and day, you know, oh, all that stuff. That's brilliant. Um, and I've turned them off now because I'm trying to get back into that creative zone and drown out all the noise and stay off social media because this has been a tough year on social media. Yeah. You know, all the worldwide protests, the violence, the pandemic, you know, there's a lot of negativity out there. And some of it's, you know, it's absolutely justified. But see, as an artist, trying to get into that creative zone, trying to still the river of stress and noise and just go, I need to focus, you know. Um, so I'm trying to disengage with social a wee bit, get back into the creative zone. You know, I'm working on my second novel at the minute, um, Raveheart, you know, around the, the dance music, because I really want, you know, as they went to two raves, we went to 22. It was a huge deal to us, you know, the whole music. That's the kind of joy in the culture. You know, in my next book, there's no suffering, no misery. It's Kevin and Perry go large versus Indiana Jones. You know, Indiana it's Jones. An adventure <laughs> yeah, it's an adventure story. They go to the Ecuadorian jungle to rescue Scooter. And it's um, almost a parody on uh, Heart of Darkness and Apocalypse Now. Scooter yeah. has become entrenched with a tribe, you know, <laughs> in the jungle. And uh, <laughs> I'm reading some South American literature around that. Um, I'm doing that. And uh, DJ Wally, who's a, a hero, he has to sacrifice to get a, an office job. So I'm, I'm using some classical literary offerings of hell. I'm, I'm trying to wade through Paradise Lost and um, Goss Faust and a few others, you know. So when he's in work, it's hell and it's lit literary hell yeah. as well as literal hell. So uh, I'm, I'm trying to, you know, do something unexpected. You know, people have got expectations. When you see the young team, it's about gangs. It's more than that. When you see rave heart, it's about raves. It's more than that. I'm talking, I'm sure people do have expectations and I'm sure maybe your publisher was one of them. Did you go along and say, they're maybe looking for young team too, or, you know, or they're not the young team or whatever. You young know, team too, team. young team harder. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And then you go, well, I've got this thing and it's... Uh, uh, Indiana Jones meets Perry and Gold. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know said we like the flavour of it. We like, we like the flavour of it. <laughs> that's that sounds amazing. Uh, so you talked about um, how train spotting almost, you know, reading that book changed your life. What's the other influences you've had, either literary or otherwise? Do you know it's a good one because I think my first exposure to literature, right? Bar my mum reading. My mum read as Lord of the Rings, right, in Hobbit when we were when we were young children, right? Yeah, yeah I did. Um, they were avid fans of that, you know. Um, and then, you know, my first literary exposure was a video game. Uh, quite surprisingly, right, it was Max Payne. I don't know if you're a, a gamer. I'm not, but, but this I know was Max a, Payne. Yeah. Yeah, you know, for anybody that doesn't know, right, it was about a, it was a New York narc, undercover drug cop, entrenched with a mob. And his wife's killed, and there's this new designer drug called Valkyrie being released in New York. It's taken over, and it's his quest for revenge. Um, but the story's told through graphic novels, and they use um, classical literary allusions to the Greek underworld, to Norse mythology. Uh -huh. You know, and I'm I'm 11 years old, 12 years old, playing this game, and I'm being exposed to literature without even realising it. it was completely accidental. You know, and um, you know that was a huge influence for me aesthetically. 
because it taught me you can introduce abstract concepts into something you're talking about, you know, and really just fucking run with it, you know. Um, they were talking about the flesh of fallen angels. I, I'm surprised I'm no what, by the way. I was, I was listening <laughs> to this when I was 11 years old. But it was all the Valkyrie stuff, you know. Um, so that was a huge one, actually, when I came to actually write. It was in there, you know, subconsciously. But that, that was a big one. Actually, a lot of people, I was the same. I was introduced to comic books at a young age. And you had the Norse mythology, you had the different gods, you know, there's all these illusions. These people were well-read themselves that were putting this yeah. stuff together. So there was that, um, that was my first one. And then I, um, no, quite nobly after I'd read Trainspot and I thought the SQA examiners are going to realise that I've been inspired to write this and I wrote about Trainspot and in my higher exam and they failed me, I got an F um, in fifth year. And yeah, they, I went rogue and they punished me quite badly. So my next two books were um, The Great Gatsby and The Crucible, Martha Miller. And I'd done Streetcar Named Desire as well. So classics, you know, and, and Gatsby, by the way, aesthetically, really made a huge impact on me. And I think it was that transition from Edinburgh heroin addicts, kind of my world, into the jazz age, into lyrical prose, into absolute, you know, the clash of modernity, in that old flowing wordy prose, you know, that we seen in the Victorian period. And I just thought, oh, wow, I was transported. And I think if you to say what was your biggest influences, I would say Great Gatsby and I would say Trainspotting, you know, and I like to think the young team somewhere between those two, you know, because it's quite lyrical, the young team and style and people, yeah. pick, they pick that out, you know, with nature and stuff. And I think it was the Gatsby, you know, I don't know. That's interesting. Uh, that's interesting because I think uh, the young team is very lyrical. I think, you know, it's, it's beautiful <clears throat> In that way, um, a, and so and then as you're at the moment, are you reading anyone at the moment? You think, yeah, that's this. They're doing something I enjoy. Or? I read uh, the the book that really blew me away recently was David Keenan's "This Is Memorial Device." Yeah. You know, I, I wrote a wee review on that on Goodreads. I hadn't used Goodreads, um, uh -huh. and I, and that was my first review that I wrote, and I called it narcotic literature, and that's the way it felt. You know, it was hallucinogenic. And um, he's a, he's a fellow Airdronian, you know. Yeah, so right, yeah. Um, so it was it was really something that book, you know. It transported me, and it was it was uncanny because I was reading about my own town in a different era, you know. So I knew the places, but it was a completely different musical scene. The whole cultural emblems so different, but it really blew me away. That was fantastic. And um, Sally Rooney's two offerings, conversations with friends, normal people. I loved them. I thought they were really good. Not not something you might expect me to read. Aye. Um, they're just very, very well written. I, I really enjoyed them. And uh, when you talk about Raveheart, so that's next for you. Is mm. this coming soon? Or It's about 60% down, so I'm hoping to get that done pre-Christmas. Um, and then it'll be a case of back and forward with um, the agent. And then um, hopefully we'll be sending that out respectively early next year. Um, so the sooner the better. Really? Something just strikes me that you said uh, when you had to lose almost 100,000 words, I think, if we put the two fifty thousands together from Young Team. Yeah. You, did, you did that without an editor. You just did it off your own. Yeah. That's... Uh, that it is... was bloody work. It was wordy. You know, I think yeah. the, the best stuff stayed in, but um, for these, uh, for these uh, anonymous people that have asked me to go and uh, dig this stuff out for a potential adaptation... I've been rewriting that, right? So I'm going back to the very beginning. 
and I'm putting it in. So I've worked out there's going to be about 75 or 80,000 more words that they can read um, with views to a potential adaptation. And some of it's quite good, you know. I'm, I'm yeah. coming back. I've, I've written about maybe 20,000 fresh words, right? So I've, I've used the ideas that I had from me as 21 and I've rewritten them. You know, I was doing one called The Green Demon uh, just last night and it was about cannabis, you know, and how insidious and dangerous that was to us. Right. You know, and it's almost, it's using that kind of almost demonic language and biblical language to talk about this drug that, you know, because I, I think that chapter, right, it was originally called The Cannabis Cocoon, right? And it was about Ozzy's personal addiction. And I feel that that was one that we missed. We missed our trick. Yeah. We missed our trick with that one. Because we go from the smoking down again, a bad experience taking pills straight into serious mental health, you know? Yeah, that's right, uh-huh. I think we needed a lily pad there. But, you know, you could go through ad infinitum, you know what I mean? And say, I wish I'd done this, I wish I'd done that. Yeah. We might see that wee bit yet, you know? It might be on screen though, rather than in literary form. Well, on that very exciting and mysterious uh, possibility, <laughs> uh, let's leave it there. Graham, thanks so much for talking to me today. No, it's my pleasure. Thank Thank you so much. No bother at all. And uh, we'll be back soon uh, with someone completely different. Cheers. Mm -hmm.